Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. What's going on? It is episode 229. We're recording this live on December 16th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today across the pond by Mr. Barry Kirby. Good evening. Good evening. Good afternoon, everybody watching live. Thank you. We got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about building human robot relationships through the power of music and dance performing arts. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about the ethics of working for companies that encourage detrimental behaviors uh, and how to improve morale in companies and in teams. But first, we've got some programming notes and a community update for you. Uh, just if you're watching live or listening uh, early Friday, you can join us on Friday, December 17th. That is tomorrow as of the time of this recording at 1 p.m. Eastern uh, for our first ever HFES presidential town hall. I'm going to be sitting down with uh, Chris Reed and Carolyn Summerick, um, and we are going to talk about the latest trends in human factors. Chris is going to kind of give a state of the union uh, address about HFES, and we're going to take some questions from everybody listening in. Uh, and who has submitted questions. It's going to be a great time. Lots of people going to be there. We're going to be across live across all of our platforms over here at Human Factors Cast, as well as the HFES official channels. You can find it on their YouTube, on their uh, Twitter, on their Facebook. So we're kind of all over the place. So you can find it anywhere on either our channels or their channels. Uh, and then just to remind everyone, uh, our upcoming holiday schedule here. So uh, this is our last live show of 2021. Kind of insane to think about it that way. Uh, but this is our last normal show. We'll uh, have another show for you later this month. Uh, this is going to be dropping on the 30th. Next week, we're going to be off for the holidays. On the 30th, we're going to have a show drop for you about every single Human Factors news story of 2021. It's going to be a long one, so you're going to want to strap in for that. And then on January 6th, we'll be back with another live episode with a story chosen by you all. Uh, speaking of the story, um, this story tonight was actually a tiebreaker. We had a, a three-way tie in our Patreon. And uh, go figure that the tiebreaker goes to the social thoughts. So, Barry, this is the part of the show where we talk about Human Factors News. So I say we get into it. Let's go. Yes, like I said, Human Factors News. Barry, what is the story for this week? So this week we're talking about building human-robot relationships through music and dance. And I'll apologize now for any laughter I get into as we go through this. When was the last time you felt a deep and meaningful connection with a robot? When was the last time you had a deep and meaningful conversation with a robot? When was that last time you trusted a robot with your most pressing secrets? Part of the problem is that robots generally just do whatever they've been programmed to do and for a human there's typically no feeling that the robot is in the is in the slightest bit interested in making any sort of kind of non-functional connection probably because it's simply not in their programming this is a real challenge when it comes to trust in robots and a team from georgia tech uh, center for music technology have partnered with the kennesaw uh, state university dance department on a forest of improving robot musicians and dancers who interact with humans to explore creative collaboration and the establishment of human-robot trust. As robots get more complicated, there's more expectation that they'll be able to interact with humans socially. 
that gap between what is technically predictable and what is meaningfully predictable by the end user can get very, very wide, which is why a more abstract kind of trust becomes increasingly important. Music and dance may not uh, be the way to make that happen for every robot out there, but it is certainly an interesting place to start. Nick, have you a watched the video? And uh, I guess the um, listeners will see the uh, the link to the the article in the in the show notes. And I encourage everybody to go and watch the video. Nick, have you watched it? And what do you think? I've watched the video. Um, <laughs> so look, here's here's the thing. Uh, the the video is an interesting experiment for for human robot <laughs> interaction. Um, I think it is worth going and watching to see exactly what we're talking about here. Um, so it is literally a forest of robots and these uh, dancers dancing in between them, interacting with them, doing uh, I'm going to I'm going to do this live on air here. So I'm going to describe it for everyone listening on audio. Uh, I am I am doing interpretive dance with my boom microphone and caressing it uh, like they're doing with the um, with the robots. It's it's. It's an interesting experiment, and I really hate to leave it there. But um, I think my biggest question about this type of research is where is the application? And I can see where this might increase trust in in automation and robotics. Uh, but this is this is kind of crazy. Um, what, <laughs> what are your initial takeaways of this thing? Um. I guess just to paint that picture a little bit more, um, they're not even, I said not even, they're not like humanoid robots or anything like that. They are literally, I guess, articulated arms as a better expression. So a, almost a single arm on a podium. And there's a number of them um, that create this forest of idea. And then these dancers who are doing very, I would say, very traditional dance, almost like ballet, very expressive, expressive movement around them. It's an interesting concept i struggle with 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 art anyway which to my elder daughter's um annoyance but this i guess it's it's not my bag um and i struggle to sort of see why how what, what does this actually do you're not going to go down to the um the car assembly line and start dancing with the uh the uh, the, the 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 welding machine that's that's putting the car together um so it, it is very conceptual it is is very very fresh um well I, I struggle i have to say let let me okay you know what i i was going to save the discussion about the article until the very end but you brought up a great point you're not going to dance with the construction machine that's putting together the car but you are you really are you're performing a dance in which they perform an action and then you move out of the way to let them perform their action and then you come in and do your action and so the, it's it's a metaphor the dance is a metaphor for interacting with robots in a way where you are teaming with them to create something or to perform a task. And so that was going to be my takeaway from this article at the very end of this. But since All you've right. mentioned that exactly, <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. It's we can go off script a little bit. That's fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, well, let, let, let's just quickly stay off script then because <laughs> let's go. Why not? We're already off the rails. Let's go. You're not interacting. You're not interacting with them. You're getting out of their way. They uh, they're performing their set actions, and so in that uh, you know in the um, on the production line, you know what uh, what they're going to do, and um, well, you've got a fair idea what they're going to do, and you're getting out of their way to let them do their thing. It's they have no real cognizance of you. 
in this relationship. And I think this is what this is alluding to as well, is that the, there is no um, re- true relationship. Because even in even in this uh, this dance, um, really the it, it is the machines doing, the robots doing what they're doing, and the, the humans almost having a fantasy that they've got a relationship going, whereas actually the robots still don't care. They just look a bit more elegant. Right now, um, right now, but but well, think about yeah. in the future. Think about in the future where these systems actually adapt and react to uh, operator actions, right? Because I mean, th- th- this type of technology exists in uh, workplaces where, like, let's say there's there's some danger with moving parts that you know, like, let's say a big robot arm is swinging across the floor and it doesn't want to clothesline, you know, a worker, and mm-hmm. so it might stop in its tracks so that way. Because uh, it detects a worker, and so the worker will then detect that movement and the stop of the robot arm, get out of its way, and then go, right? So it is almost a dance where the computer might anticipate something, or the robot, I should say, might anticipate an action from the worker, the operator, the user of the robot, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so it, I, I think it could be a dance. I, I get. I get the merit. I I get it. <laughs> so I guess to take a step back, then I think for for the sake let, let's let's dive into the uh, into these human yes. factors issues here. Uh, should we should we try and just walk through what human human robot interaction is? Let's let's talk um, about the outline. Then, so let's let's talk about human robot yeah. interaction, what it is, and then we'll get to trust in robots and automation. Uh, thank you for reining me in and getting us back on track. Um, <laughs> it's a pleasure to come here. So, so let's let's break down um, human robot interaction here, and this is from I think a Sheridan article from 2016. So the uh, basic premise here is that human robot interaction can be divided roughly into four areas of application. We can kind of talk a little bit about each of these individually, um, but you have supervisory control of robots in these sort of performance or routine tasks. Those are like the, you know, uh, putting putting this thing from here to there. We can talk about the examples in a minute. I want to get through the four types. Uh, yeah. Remote control of space, airborne, terrestrial, and undersea vehicles. Then you have the third area of application, which is kind of the automated vehicles where humans are a passenger. And then lastly, you have human-robot social interaction. Uh, and I think this is firmly where our story falls. But I do want to back up and kind of talk about these. Do you want to give some examples of some of these? Maybe we can talk through them together. Yeah, so the the human supervisory, so the, the first one you mentioned, the human supervisory control. Um, I mean, that is basically what we were talking about in um, in the warehouses um, and doing some of these tasks. Um, they, they, I guess they're more commonly called as tele-robots. And they're... they're They've got a limited function, uh, limited action based on a computer program. So it's it's assembly lines, it's it's moving packages around, it's mail, it's medicines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but when you go into the, the remote control of space, airborne, terrestrial, and undersea vehicles, um, they are they're a, they're a, a more um, more in depth thing. So they're they're teleoperators, and so they're really doing their mobility tasks in the remote uh, physical environment. But it, but they've been remotely controlled by uh, by a human with that human input. Um, so then you've got automated vehicles, which I think um, a lot of us are um, very familiar with. So it's your it's your commercial aircraft with its um, with its autopilot. It's your you know the rail vehicles that are largely 
um, running automated with just human in, in a supervisory capacity or just literally as a passenger. Um, and then you get down to what we're talking, talking about tonight, this human-robot social interaction. Um, and then providing entertainment, teaching, so things where you, this idea of the, almost the co-robot sort of idea, it could be toys, it could be therapeutic animals, um, something that is is trying to um, exhibit an, an amount of empathy between, or a bit, at least try and establish a relationship between the two that is more than just a servant um, leader type, um, servant master type uh, type relationship. Yeah, I want to hit a couple points here. So you you brought up the supervisory control robots, and I think there's a important thing, uh, important definition encapsulated here that we were kind of talking about, where it's capable of sensing its environment and its own joint positions and communicating that information back to a human operator. And as we're kind of talking about trust in automation and in human robot teaming, that's where I was saying I think this um, this story actually plays in well. Because if you look at that performance of putting together things on the assembly line, that is a dance, right? If you if you think about the performance of um, uh, when you think about the remote control of these vehicles where you are providing an input, like let's say to a helicopter on Mars, we have a whole episode on that. If you are communicating to that uh, robot or that device, you are then expecting it to perform some output and then it will, you know, has automated systems on board that perform its own actions and then it reports back to you and then you must react to its actions. And so it is a dance between these two. Uh, see, I'm, I'm trying to link everything back to a dance. Uh, I, I, see, I see what you're trying to do. <laughs> it's tenuous, but I, I, I see what you're trying to do. <laughs> No, I think you are right, though. If you if you see a, a, you know that dance as a as a as a choreographed interaction between two things, then then yes, and there is that um, action reaction um, uh, type approach. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll let you have it. All right, thank I'm, you. I, I appreciate you letting me have that one. So Christmas. yes, <laughs> in, in thank you. <laughs> so in this in this specific article, though, we're talking about. Uh, this this performance art between dancers and robots. And we're talking about trust in this context. And what I, I, I get the um, the appeal of this and I appreciate what they're doing. So here I am trying to defend the whole thing. And then, <laughs> now I'm going to tear it apart. So the. <laughs> Look, the, it's interesting because I'm not sure whether or not these are pre-programmed actions or if there are actual sensors on board that are reacting to the dancer's performance. Because, like, in some ways, this requires a a, a ton of trust because you have the dancers who are uh, effectively caressing these robot arms with many, many joints and pinchable areas. And so that requires a lot of trust for you to put your hand in the right spot so that way your hand doesn't get pinched. Mm -hmm. Like, it requires an insane amount of care. And if the robot can react to where the human is, then that would indicate some trust, right? It's not no longer just a choreographed back and forth. It is a uh, symbiotic relationship where one action informs the actions of another thing, which in this case is the robot. And... Um, I think that has a lot of value when you look at trust in automation. Do we want to let's break down trust in automation or robots really 
and uh, kind of what's the state of things, right? And kind of what affects the trust? Yeah, so when we look at um, trusting robots, I mean, I think I, culturally we are massively, I would say, flavored or um, or influenced by what we see. I mean, we, we see robots more, more so in movies, don't we? Um, so and any sort of movie, and generally robots go bad in movies. Um, so everything from what what happened on the the Alien and well, pick a pick a Hal on two thousand one, um, yeah. 2001 Space Odyssey, um, all the way through to um, to more modern films. So, but fundamentally, we've got to look at what affects trust between us and uh, us and a system or us and a robot. And it breaks down to three main areas. So the first one is the system properties. And so th this is just looking at the, si at the robot as a system. And so just how reliable is it? We, we generally hold um, robotic systems or any sort of um, um, computer systems, to be fair, to a higher standard than we do ourselves. So we we expect um, robotic systems to be almost infallible, um, whereas we are, we're quite happy with the fact that humans are fallible, which is interesting. So we we systems have to be reliable. They, any system faults shouldn't be um, shouldn't you know just shouldn't happen, or they should be easily identifiable. Um, the system should act in a predictable manner. So it shouldn't do anything um, that, that's like uh, out of left field or anything like that, which is going to be a problem when we get into artificial general intelligence and it starts doing things that we're not expecting. But actually, in hindsight, you could probably break down why it did it, why it's done what it's done. But it should act in a predictable manner, um, and it should be intelligible. And and anything that it's doing, it should be transparent. You, there should be um, the decisions that it makes or um, any actions that it does. Um, should be immediately transparent about why it's done what it's done. And it should be um, applicable to the level of automation that we're playing with. And so obviously we're going for this human-robot social interaction. Um, do you want to chat a bit about the prop uh, properties of the operator? Yeah, I can jump into those. I think I, I do want to make one point on kind of the system properties. We are sort of analyzing all these things in in our heads as we're looking at a robotic system or an autonomous system. And it's us as human factors practitioners are breaking this down into these individual components because these are all the things that are going on in our head. As yeah. we're processing this live, watching these robotic uh, interactions happen, right? So, so all this is happening automatically. We're just trying to break it down. From the operator side of things, there are certain attributes associated with individuals that may impact how trusting you are of an autonomous system or a robot where things like how, you know, your propensity to trust, how, how likely are you to trust things to begin with? Um, sort of your self-confidence. Are you, are you going to walk up to a robot because you're very self-confident or are you going to be a little bit hesitant because you're not quite sure in your ability to interact with that thing? You know, if, if you are very confident in your abilities, you might walk right up to it and say, I can I can do this where you, you know, somebody else might say, I need to watch somebody else do this before I even attempt. Um, and then you also have sort of the individual differences in, in individuals and culture. So, you know, I might look at a robot and say, hell, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go I'm going to go dance with this thing. I'm going to put my hands right up next to its joints and hope that it doesn't pinch my fingers off. <laughs> and and uh, you might go, oh, I'm going to watch Nick do this because. Uh, <laughs> I don't want my Absolutely. fingers pinched off. Yeah. Um, and then you have culture too, right? Like different cultures look at robotics differently. There are some that might see robotic entities as abominations uh, of, of nature. 
And you might see others like Western industrialized cultures who might view them as uh, saviors in some cases for certain tasks. Right. I think that that gamut varies widely across you know the world. And so those will absolutely impact how we view robots and how how likely we are to trust them. Then there's environmental factors, um, which is kind of everything else. Did you want to talk about anything? I only have one thing listed here, but is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of yeah, environmental factors? I mean, not not really. I mean, the, yes, there is the there's the risks around um, you know the environment that you're working in and and how that works. The other bit, actually, just to loop back, just to the operator properties, the because you make a really good point about the self confidence in being able to go up and, and talk to these things. Um, but it actually might, there is also an element of the other side of that as some people being, um, who are not self-confident actually being more confident with a, with a robot because they know it isn't human. And so the people who struggle with, with relationships, um, with human to human relationships, um, might find actually human to robot relationship, um, much more, uh, much easier to do. And there is some uh, people at the moment, I believe who've like married robots and things like that, which, um, yeah, I mean, clearly they've got lots of trust um, in 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 robots in that um, in that environment, but it's um, yes, I think there's this whole human machine relationship um, is is going to be one of these one of these key factors about um, it, it could break down in the entire society. Who knows? Who knows? Um, so let's let's get back to the article because when when I was going through these articles, I looked at this and and said, this would be a great way for us to talk about human-robot interaction or trust in automation. And we did that. <laughs> now we're left with the article. And I, like, we, we've been pretty hard on this article, admittedly. <laughs> I've been trying to give it the benefit of, de of the doubt here. I do want to mention a couple points here, though, that, you know, um, just kind of illustrating the differences between the way humans form emotional connections and the way that, uh, we form emotional connections with robots or, you know, whatever. But here's here's the thing is that us humans, we tend to trust other humans by having that emotional connection with them. It's it's the reciprocity. Um, and this is something that robots are not great at. This is, you know, so the more a robot can sympathize with somebody and empathize with somebody, then it's more likely that there's going to be a mutual trust. There's There's got to be a, some sort of mutual understanding about communication and predictability between the two parties, right? So I'm talking to you, Barry, and I, I would expect you to come to a conversation like this as we're talking on a podcast with well-thought-out uh, points about an article on human-robot interaction and dance performances. And... Uh if That's you were to come to this conversation not well prepared, then right. maybe not the best example. <laughs> Look, I expect you to come to the podcast and talk about yeah. something in a yeah. in a way that's intelligent and entertaining. And if you were to come to this and kind of be monotone the whole time and maybe not even bring up some of these points that we did, uh, then I I would lose a little trust in your ability to you know be a co-host on the show. So. That is some sort of expectation. Now, it's different when you have robots. You have some sort of expectation with how they perform. And if they don't perform in that way or don't react in the way that you 
expect them to, it's going to be, you're going to lose some trust in it. Um, that's one point that I want to make. Are there, are there any other takeaways from this article that you want to talk about? I put kind of like everything else in here, but that was kind of the one that I wanted to touch on. Yeah, I think the, I mean, fundamentally, I think, yes, we have been probably quite hard on hard on the article. And, you know, we were making some um, comments um, earlier about, you know, where does this this type of research get funding from and, and this and this that and the other. But we have, when we've looked at other technologies in other podcasts, um, other podcast episodes, we have acknowledged that every bit of research has to start somewhere. And so there is an element of this. It's a different way of looking at this idea. There is an absolute um, need to understand that um, that relationship between robots and, and humans because I think one of the words that we've both used quite a lot tonight is or today is is mutual, a mutual understanding, a mutual trust, a mutual engagement. And this is what, for me, is fundamentally missing out of this and why we're just not there yet because – to have an emotional connection, yeah, that means you have to have a that mutual shared understanding of an experience or um, of an activity or something like that to have some shared empathy. Robots just simply don't have that. Um, they don't have it in a way that is um, brought together as a meaningful experience for them. Therefore, you can't share that experience. They may they may have it in their memory bank, so it'll, it'll be stored in on a on a hard drive somewhere. Um, but it isn't something that we're not there yet with that level of emotional intelligence for them. So right. we will always have that um, leader-servant relationship with them. When we get to that point where they can start um, you know, interacting with us and really, I guess, make us think, make us maybe be able to put a, a point across or something like that that makes you go, oh, okay um that's when we're starting to get somewhere but at the moment yeah i think the um, i'd like to go and see this live i'd like to go and see how they're doing it and and do that because i don't think the video or the article really truly does it justice um either that or it's just gonna be really cool to go and see um it would be right yeah I, I think it's, it's a it's it's a, it's novel it's and from that perspective i think it's it is good um i i just would I think it probably needs another 10 years. Yeah, I do want to touch on that empathy. So to give an example from this exact performance, you have uh, you have the dancers with the forest, but then you also have another robot that is like strumming the guitar as a human uh, fingers the board. And so you have um, the the trust between the human and the robot to the, the, the human is trusting the robot to strum the guitar. And if the robot doesn't strum the guitar, then the human's going to be disappointed. And it's like, why didn't you do that? Well, it was pre-programmed to do it. Why didn't you do it? The other, the opposite empathy is not true, right? If, if yeah. they strum the guitar and it's just an open chord instead of, um, you know, uh, uh, the human didn't, the human actually put a chord versus not, the robot doesn't care. The robot's not going to be upset exactly. that the human doesn't yeah. do it. They're Like you said, they're just going to log it in their bank and call it a day. So, yeah. yes, we have a long way to go, but I think from the human side, we are learning a lot about how we trust robots. And um, I I guess I get the merit of this research. <laughs> Which is not where we started. So that, that, that's not, not where a, we started. That's where we <laughs> ended up. Not, the journey. Sure. Yes. The friends and the robotic friends that we made along the way. Indeed.
All right. Well, thank you to our patrons this week. And uh, actually, thank you to everyone this week because we did have a tiebreaker. Um, thank you to our friends over at IEEE Spectrum for our news story this week. If you follow, if you want to follow along, we do post the links on our to the original articles. I can't talk tonight, man. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Post the original yeah. articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. You can also join us in our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break, and then uh, we'll be back to see what's going on around the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. That's right. Huge thank you, as always, to our patrons, especially I want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Uh, we're talking about Patreon. I do want to talk about some of the other fun stuff that's not kind of mentioned in that video, or maybe it does. I don't know. It's been a while. Uh, but we do have, <laughs> I know this one's not mentioned in there. We do have full audio versions of the show. So what you're listening to live um, is the full audio version. So if you're not listening live, we do some editing, post-processing. And we have a pre-show and a post-show that our patrons get access to. Of course, if you join us on the live stream, you can see that and, and you can hear that. Um, but our patrons get that full audio version. So if you're an audio-only version listener and you want more of that type of content, we have those. We also have weekly Q&As. Uh, so we, we have those dropping every week. Some weeks are quieter than others, and that's okay. We want just to provide an opportunity for people to you know, ask questions. And this could be anything. This could be anything from like, hey, Barry, what, what's your favorite ice cream to, uh, hey, I have this really complex problem I need for school uh, done and you guys can help. It literally is a range that you can ask us there. It is meant to be an ask us anything. And we are there as your personal advice respondents. Um, and we do share those with the entire lab. So you get some varying opinions there. <laughs> you also get early access to the show. We dropped the show a little bit, uh, a couple hours early for our patrons every Thursday night. Uh, and then it goes live for everyone else. And then we also always have bonus content going on. So like when we did the show refresh, we did a, um, you know, we dropped the artwork that we were considering for the refresh. Uh, on Patreon first and got their feedback. So if that's something that you're interested in, if you want to donate a little bit to the show, help us cover some of those costs to do like the website hosting domain, the tools that we use, we don't pocket any of the money. It's, it all goes back into the show. So thank you all so much for uh, keeping the show running. We really appreciate your continued support. All right. We're going to switch gears and get into this next part of the show. We like to call it came from. It came from. That's right. It came from. We're going to keep it a little shorter this week. We got two of them. Uh, this week, it's all Reddit. And this is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. 
If you find these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're at to help other people find this content. So we got two of them tonight. Let's get into the first one. First one is something I find really interesting, fascinating here. This one is by Jack WM on the user experience subreddit. Is it ethical to accept a job offer for a betting company? They go on to write, I've been job hunting for a while, getting to the final interviews, but rejected at the last minute. A sports betting company that I won't name is offering me a UX job with great pay and benefits, but some of my friends think it's shameful to be trying to improve the user experience for gamblers. I'm on the fence. On one hand, a job's a job. On the other hand, I don't want to be a part of the problem. The company themselves says they empower in-control gamblers to entertain themselves and that people are responsible for their own decisions. But problem gambling is still a significant problem and not going anywhere, especially with online gambling growth. I could really use some advice about this and would love to have a discussion about it if it's the right thing to do or not. What are your thoughts? Barry, I want to expand this to, you know, beyond gambling. I want to talk about sort of the ethics of designing for dark patterns and like what would happen if you were instructed to design a dark pattern. So I, I'm going to let you take this one away. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think from a purely professional perspective, there is there is some really cool stuff here. There's, there's the opportunity to get into some real culture, behavior sort of elements, and there's going to be some really... Depending on what your what the UX that they're trying to get you to create, with like say it's not even just gambling. If you're into like say you mentioned dark patterns, but then there is also you know there's like um, the sex industry has loads of websites that all require UX design and and etc cetera, etc cetera, etc. On the one hand, you've got um, things that and it, it's all about perception as well because it's they say that um, you know they their friends I, I think it's shameful, but actually. There's a vast majority of people in in this sort of um, who who work uh, sorry who engage with you know gambling websites gam gambling things who don't have a problem who enjoy it it's it's their thing it is a there is a subset of society that does find it a, a problem people gamble on anything so yeah it's I've got no real uh, real thought in this because you could say you know I work in the defense industry um, part of what we do in the defense industry is um, you know, we talk we talk about things like lethality and stuff like that on a um, like applying kinetic effect, which is all buzzwords for well killing people and and stopping other people from killing what we consider the good guys and that type of thing. Which you know you could you could talk about the morals and ethics of of that type of thing. And I regularly do when whenever we interview somebody, we I have that discussion with them because it's you know it, it's not your run of the mill type of job. So I think you've got to be perfectly clear with yourself about how you feel about working in the, in the, this sort of arena um the job will get done somebody will pick up that job regardless um it's like most things the the jobs um some somebody will somebody will do the job so i guess you, the battle you've got is is it something that you're happy to do um or is it something that um, that you're not and if you're not happy to do it or you're um or you feel embarrassed to admit what you do to you, you know, in your friendship group or whatever, then maybe it isn't the job for you. Maybe it is something that you should be um, uh, moving on from and going to going somewhere else. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's all about whether you can solve it within your own conscience. What do you think? 
Yeah, I'm along the same lines, right? So I worked in the defense industry for a while, and I was very clear with uh, my employer and the contractors that I was working on that I would not work on anything that would help take the life of another human being. Like, I, I made that abundantly clear, and that was one of my conditions on being hired, right? Is I don't want to work on anything that will help take the life of another person. And so the stuff that I worked on was very much defense-focused. Like, it was very much protection um, you know, protecting our soldiers from, uh, from other things, our war fighters. Uh, and so it was, it was one of those things where I could be proud of the work that I was doing because it was, it, it was, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be careful about what I say here. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was in, in service of protecting. Now, you know, I, I did work on an Intel systems and so you might, then say, well, the more intel we have, the better decisions that we can make about that. And when it comes to that, it's like, well, if if you gather enough information, you can reduce the the amount of collateral damage. Um, and so it's like it is it is a really challenging game of how you rationalize things in your head. Ultimately, I got out of the defense industry because I couldn't handle grappling with that stuff anymore. Right. Oh, and so. um I, I think it is an interesting question to ask yourself. Now, the fact that you're asking this to begin with, I think is makes you very qualified for the job because if you're in that position, then you might say, okay, well, you kind of have the ultimate authority of how it would impact these people. Like, do you want to design it easier to use or do you introduce you know, ease in some aspects, like maybe ease of getting your money, but then difficulty in sort of um, placing the bets because you have to go through all these, you know, I understand the risk associated with this. Gambling is a risk. I, I understand, you know. So there are different ways in which you as a UX designer can help um, protect people. And, and I think in these situations where you might have these behaviors that might be uh, susceptible for certain humans, right? Like gambling addiction or something like that, you might rationalize it by saying, well, I can put in checks to say, I've, I've put in things that will help it to be less likely that addicts will gamble, but more likely that non-addicts will gamble. And you have to do that research. I don't know. It's not my domain, but that's something that you could do as somebody in a UX position, right? It is all a gamble. See, we did that. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that was that was good. Um, I mean, the fact that, like I say, the fact that they're asking the question in the first place um, actually puts you in a really good position um, because it means that they're that you're actually thinking about it in uh, in that way. Because again, like I said, when I ask people in in interviews if they I turn around and say, look, are you happy with this sort of uh, with this sort of world? This idea that you could the the effect you could have on lethality, um, the, the fact what you're doing could end up killing people one way or another. If they just turn around and say, yeah, yeah, of course, that's not a problem. That's also a bit of a trigger because I don't think you should be oh, entirely yeah. comfortable. you shouldn't be entirely comfortable with it um, because of the nature of what it is. Um, so if you're almost too blasé, but if you're also too hungry, it's it's there's a sweet spot um, about making sure you've always got that thing in the back of your head going is that right is that the right thing to be doing um yeah it's a interesting position 
I agree. All right, let's get into the last one here. So this is uh, trying to figure out what companies human resources are doing to keep their workplace happy and motivated towards work. This is by Abi Tam on the user experience subreddit. They go on to write, looking for ideas that can motivate employees and make them more productive. What kinds of things can human resources do to keep workplaces healthy? Now, in current situation, most of the people work remotely, and it's really difficult to keep them connected towards companies, towards the company's goal. Most of the people are overworked and exhausted. How can we de-stress them so they feel fresh? Uh, this is a this is more of like an HR question and a and a company morale question, but it's important to know, especially if you work on a smaller team of like a a researcher with designers and uh, manager, product managers, developers, there's different levels of team morale. And I thought, you know, we thought this was a good question to answer. So Barry, from, from a smaller perspective and a company perspective, how do you improve morale? So given where we're at the moment with the pandemic, uh, remote working is going to be a thing. In fact, I've just had a, a thing come through the, uh, right now saying that we might be heading back into a, a lockdown in the new year or something akin to a lockdown in the new year. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, the you So the first thing I always start off with is making sure that, um, that your team has got what they need. Um, have they got, and we, we did it right at the start of the pandemic when it, when, it, when it kicked off, do you have the right tools to do the job so you're not um working off a um uh, off an ironing board you know right? do you have a desk do you have your laptop do you have the right sort of screen so basically the fundamental good ergonomics of, of office working um because we've seen so many people now are starting to get them sort of injuries the marisai injuries from suboptimal use then we've got to certainly one thing i've been quite passionate about is almost transferring the things that you would do in the office that are, are not work focused but uh, really, I still think quite keen to, into having the team coming together. And that is the equivalent of going to have a cup of coffee as a team and having that general chat. So I, I try and kick off in the morning, um, say a couple of times a week with, uh, with a Zoom or a Teams or um, whatever you're using, um, just to be able to sort of say, you know, what are you doing today? You know, what did you go to last night? How was the, uh, the new Spider-Man movie that came out uh, yesterday? And so no, my spoilers. Team no spoilers, no spoilers. I, I'm good to see it, but uh, apparently they said it was really good. Um, and so the you know you've got to have that level of relationship, which we've forgotten. I think many people have forgotten through uh, through the lockdown that we're so focused on. If you're going on a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting, that you can have a Zoom meeting from nine o'clock till ten o'clock, then you can have one from ten o'clock till ten thirty, then another one from ten thirty to eleven, and you don't have any gap between them. You don't have that walking between meeting room, meeting room, and and that type of thing. So it's about allowing people that that sense of respite um in between uh, the meetings that you would usually have and then there's the there's that other side of the social interaction so i think everybody's got a bit a uh, bit good at um you know zoom quizzes um so bringing bringing your team together in the evening as if you go down to the pub after work and that type of thing so trying to recreate that um that um, capacity and notice none of that of what i've said is actually connecting you towards company goals um, that's all about making sure that your employees um, feel connected, that they feel part of them, um, them teaming behaviors that, um, that you would naturally use in the office. Or if you work for half decent companies, you do. Um, I have worked with one who tried to stop us from doing that, and that didn't go well. Um, but the, you know, them, them human behaviors, as long, the best we can re um, recreate them and make people feel like they're, they're valued in that way, then you're on a really good bedding 
to be able to go and then um, get them, empower them to do to do their job right in the first place. So what about you, Nick? What's your experiences with this? What do you think? Yeah, great points. Um, I do want to touch on the point that you made about making time for others. So with meetings, what I've done is I've tried to build into most meetings just like, you know, five, 10 minutes of camaraderie building. So it's not it's not listed as such. But Mm -hmm. when I design meetings length, I am I am taking that into consideration. It is that, hey, how are you? How are things going? You know, you just had a kid. How's that going? Like, you know, that type of thing. And so making sure that you have time for that is really important. I would say there are a couple different ways to look at this type of question. There's what do you do for new employees, new hires to make them integrate with a team? Or what do you do for current employees that uh, maybe there's there's some rationale or um, some... uh, there's some problems with morale. Uh, and so there's there's these questions that we need to answer. So let, let's take a look at the new hire, right? You pay them accordingly, pay them well. You give them, like you said, everything that they need. And you invest in their time. So what I mean by that is understand that, especially in a remote environment, if you're starting somebody up fresh in a remote environment, there are going to be huge roadblocks for that person. And you need to not only anticipate them, but solve for them. So for example, let's say there's a new person that's starting and you know they have a certain role within a company. You want to outline kind of like, hey, here are here as a manager, you might want to come to the table and say, hey, here's a list of like 10 people that you're going to want to talk to in the first four weeks. Um, and you know, here's what each of them do. Come to them with kind of a roadmap of what they can expect for the first month, month and a half. That way there's a plan in place and they're not kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs going, I don't know what to do. I just started at this company. I can't, it's not like I can go anywhere. No one's stopping by my office and telling me anything. I don't know what's going on. They have a plan in place and they can address it at their own leisure. Um, You know, give them kind of a laundry list of documentation to read on their free time. And that's, boring, but then the, you know, actual human connections, those are important. And again, make sure that when they are having those connections that they build in time to really get to know that other person, do an informal introduction. Hey, I'm so-and-so, this is what I'm about. Okay. That's the new hire side. Now let's get into the, the team is together and morale is low and we need to do something to fix it. From an HR perspective, from a company perspective, I think it's really important for a company to have a roadmap of improvements that are listed for um, employees and have certain conditions be met to to get those right. Like, let's say you have a certain amount of surplus, you might want to give them all an extra day off a month, or if um, you know, just as like a wellness day or something. If you if you have uh, the means to, you give them the PTO that that they need. Basically, increasing their benefits without um, sort of costing the company a lot of money. Uh, or, or maybe it does cost the company a lot of money, but that, that return on investment is great because then you have employees that are well refreshed, they're not burnt out, that type of thing. Um, but having a roadmap and having those uh, continuous engagement events to kind of build company morale are really important, uh, especially 
especially when you have larger companies. Um, and and so that's that's my opinion on that. I don't know if you had anything else to add. No, I think we both um, covered all aspects of that that pretty well. It's just for me, it's fundamentally just remember that pe- that your employees are people. Um, treat them as such. Engage with them. In, and remember what it was like when you you were at that level. And um, and we need to make sure that we keep people uh, keep people engaged. But what if I inherited the company from my father, and um, you know, well, then you I never was at that level. Go and spend go and spend the millions, and let, <laughs> let the people who know what they're doing run the business. All right. Well, why don't we? I think there's no other way to transition, so let's just get into it. This is what we call one more thing. It's where we just talk about one more thing. Barry, what do you got this week? So this week, I talked. If I've talked in the past couple of um, um, episodes about should I upgrade to Windows 11? I upgraded to Windows 11. How is it? And I'm distinctly underwhelmed. <laughs> it's are, uh, are you? It's, are you? Hang on. Are you underwhelmed or whelmed? I think I was expecting amazing things, and it is amazing in the fact that it, it did install within 20 minutes, half an hour, um, with no touch word issues, um, and it's familiar enough that it works, but actually there's a couple of, it's a bit smoother. Now, I was trying to explain it um, earlier that it feels lighter, that it feels a lot less process heavy, and, and there's no, I've, I've not looked at my, any of the uh, the actual processing value of that, but it just the way it looks and feels, it does feel like a lighter touch, which is quite neat. The one thing I huh. don't like about it is the they do center the um, the taskbar, so your um, start button is is, the, is in the center just to the left, but you can change that. It's the first thing I've done is actually change that, so it does all change to the left. So if you like having your start button in the bottom left hand corner, you can make that happen again. Um, but Good. generally, it it hasn't been the stress that I thought it was going to be. So that was one. And then the other thing I did last week was, um, was it last week? Yes, no, it was last Friday. Um, Give a presentation to a live audience. Um, Large presentation, large lecture theater. um, Still was only about at half capacity. So there was only 80, 85 people there. Um, But what a lot of fun it was. I've been doing a lot of webinars and things like that uh, through Zoom and and this, that and the other. Well, this was the first large presentation I've done probably in, in a couple of years. And it was it was so much fun. It was so nice to be able to sort of engage. I mean, everybody's wearing masks and stuff. So there's still only limited interaction. You can see the limited body cues, but it was it was such a nice thing to do. So that that's what I ended up my ended off my week last week. And um I'm looking forward to doing more of that if we can do. You know how I know you're a performer is because you feed off the audience and it's it's a symbiotic relationship between the audience and the performer where <laughs> yeah no it, it 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 so is because you're you sort of sit there and you, i did a pre, i did a, another presentation today so i did a, a lecture for uh, for a university and i've done two of these before and actually in classrooms i did, did them a few weeks ago and this one was up was online the difference and the content was pretty much the same so it was just for for a different cohort um but how much harder it was um or not as engaging not as um interesting in many ways because you weren't getting the questions you weren't getting the eye contact you weren't being you couldn't work out whether you were pitching it properly and and stuff like that so i think a lot of kudos to a lot of the lecturers and and things who've happened to been deliver a lot of this stuff online um throughout the past two years because i don't think i could do it in the way that they've uh, managed to soldier through it so um, so are, yes. would you say it's because of a lack of trust with the automated systems going on with the, uh, is it, is it like a dance? 
I was going to say, I clearly wasn't dancing enough with my audience or with my microphone, um, one one or the other. But uh, but yeah, nice link back. I like that. Thank you. All right. My, my one more thing. Um, so we are getting to the point where uh, we need to spell out certain words in front of my son because they are uh, triggering in, in one way or another. So <laughs> let's say um, there's a certain thing that he might want to watch on TV, like C-A-R-S. Right. Yes. Uh, okay. We can't say that word or else he will be immediately notified that that is a possibility. <laughs> and so, you know, or like if we don't want him having too much screen time, hide the T-A-B-L-E-T with the uh-huh. G-A-M-E-S. <laughs> so we have to we have to spell out all these things now. Um, and it's like I, I always thought it was one of those things that's funny as you see it in like television and movies. But actually doing it in practice is as a. Uh, uh, also funny i i don't know <laughs> it's funny for a bit then it becomes really irritating and then they learn how to spell yo yeah uh, i can't wait for that day yeah and then and then it all goes to rats again so but uh but no it must be nice having that that sort of um that sort of interaction where they they you you i don't know whether you've treated we sort of did this with our kids so we've almost treated them like a social experiment um about what oh, yeah. you can get away with and, and what you can't um and it's in, it's so fascinating seeing them evolve and uh, reacting to the different uh, stimuli and the different triggers and stuff like that um yes it's it's good fun yes children's are the world's greatest experiments all right well that's going to be it for today everyone please join us tomorrow at uh, 1 p.m eastern for our hfes presidential town hall if you like this episode and enjoy some of the challenges in trust of trust in human robot interaction we invite you to check out episode 217, where we took a look at the newly announced Tesla bots and other humanoid robots that don't dance and what that might mean for your life. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Slack or Discord communities. Visit our official website and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, you can leave us a five-star review. You can do that right now. Two, tell your friends about us. Three, if you have the money, consider donate, consider supporting to us, but honestly, donate to somebody else. It's, it's the holidays. Just give it to somebody else in need. Uh, and as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about pinching their fingers in robots? Well, you can always find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K or come listen to me on my podcast at 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, which is at www.1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch for office hours sometimes and uh, across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline.
Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory. Because it's more than just common sense.